Thank you for downloading this podcast from Emmanuel Church Lurgan. At Emmanuel, our vision is to help rewrite the story of Craigavon, Ireland and the nations with the good news of the Kingdom of God. We hope you enjoy listening to this message. It's been great to worship together. Is everyone doing okay? That's good. That's good. Hope you've had a good week, enjoying the nice weather. And um, fortunately, kind of broke a bit today. But um, I want to continue tonight this series, as Grant says. Um, uh, we've called Do It Again uh, in, our, in Our Time. It's a, it's a series on revival and what happens when God really breaks in in history. Our signature text, if you like, the text that we really want to stay on over the next few weeks is on the screens, Hebrews chapter, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. Oh, sorry, I've got this. Are we on, Chris? Yeah. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day, in our time. Make them known in wrath. Remember mercy. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. I said last week that it felt like what the Lord wants me to do, and maybe how the Lord wants to use me over these uh, few Sunday nights, is to help um, by His Spirit and by His grace to stir up uh, imagination for revival, to stir our imaginations for awakening, for what that really means, for what it could look like, and for us to maybe get to, get to grips a little bit more with what we mean when we talk about that. And I was supposed pretty bold last week in uh, saying that I think, and I'm stating that I think the Lord is stirring something uh, in these days in which we live, and he wants us to position ourselves for a move of his spirit, um, for an inbreaking of his spirit. And um, I'm, I'm saying that because I don't think we're living in one yet. I don't think that's our current reality. But I think the Holy Spirit is calling us to position ourselves for one. That's why our number one aim as a church in order to fulfill our vision is to posture ourselves for a move of God's Spirit in the nation. And I said last week, finished off saying, I felt like the way that waves are made is right out at sea where um, the wind starts to gather a wave and the wave moves towards the shore. And we only see the wave when the wave actually breaks um, or see the power of the wave, at least. And um, I was just commenting on the fact that when I was away in Portugal a few weeks ago, at the end of the summer, I got the chance to teach Annie and Erin at the age they are now, how when the wave breaks to get on that wave and how that can bring them into shore. And I suppose I felt like the Lord was saying to me, not necessarily when I was doing it, because I was just having a good time with my, with my kids, but since then I just felt like the Holy Spirit has been saying that a wave has started to move towards us. And our job as a church, or the call of God on our lives is to pray that wave in, to call it in, and to be ready to surf that wave. And um, and we want, because we want it for our own generation, and we certainly want it for the generation to come. And it was interesting, just, um, maybe I'm just um, probably reading far too much into this, as preachers do, but um, I saw this picture during the week, Nicholas sent it to me. It was taken this week, picture of Ireland, and um if you know 1 Kings chapter 18, you know there's a passage that tells us that there's a cloud when Elijah prayed for rain. There was a cloud the size of a man's hand that rose up from the sea 
and he prayed and he prayed. He prayed seven times with his head between his knees and he, cut, he, he sent the servant back every time, if you know the story. And the seventh time he saw a cloud the size of a man's hand rise up from the sea. I don't know about you, but just over Loch Ness there, that looks to me like a cloud kind of the size of a man's hand, doesn't it? Um, from the sky anyway. And um, I don't know, in, my, in, in, in God's own little kind of playful way, he was just reminding me, I think, that <clears throat> something has started. We need to prepare our hearts. We need to get ready. And I, I started, so a brief recap here just to bring everybody with me. Last week we started by trying to help people at a base level understand what we mean when we talk about revival. Not to talk about revival in a way that's only for the religious professionals or for only the good prayer people or the one thing the intercessors get in on or even to make revival something that's out of reach that we can't really grab and get a hold of. But rather to realize that the deep cry of every human heart is for awakening, is for revival. We're always reviving something. Some of us pay a lot of money on ourselves to make ourselves look nicer, feel better, all of those kind of things. We, we do things to revive, to feel like a little buzz, a little lift, a little kick, a little uplift in life. And the reality is, deep down, what we're really aching for the most is an encounter of the manifest presence of God. And so revival is for all of us right at the heart of our lives. And I say this because I want to propose that this isn't just for the prayer people or just for the church leaders, but all of us, I feel God is positioning us to steward an outpouring of his Holy Spirit. The natural longing of each of our hearts is to experience the one who created us for himself. And I think God wants us all to get to the place where we are living for that moment. And the places where we do our day jobs are actually simply the place where we get to steward that outpouring. Right? So we get to steward the outpouring where God has called us to live and to use our talents and our abilities for his glory. And, uh, and so for me, that happens to be leading the church. I love it. I'm very passionate about it and all of those things. But it's no more important for school teachers, people that work in Tesco's, people that work in retail, people that have their own businesses. It's no more important than any of that because the Holy Spirit is positioning you where you are to steward the moving of his spirit in the sphere of influence he's called you to. Um, because the reality is that's what I think heaven is going to look like. Heaven is going to look like that. In case you're wondering, I don't think we're going to be singing the whole time, right? And frankly, as much as I love singing and song worship, I love that I could do that. Probably I could do that forever because I love it. But I don't think we're going to be doing that. I think we are, it sounds a bit little cheesy kind of phrase that we, we were taught when we were growing up. But really, we're training here for reigning when we get to heaven. Because God wants us to steward the earth. And God's going to make a new earth. But on earth and heaven and on the new heaven and the new earth, when Jesus comes back, it won't be called revival. It will just be called normal. Yeah, because we'll be stewarding his presence wherever we are, wherever we live. There's going to be cities in heaven. That's what Revelation tells us. It's not all metaphorical, right? There's going to be cities and rivers and places, and we're going to steward in the way we were supposed to. And when moments in history that we live in now happen, which we call revival, they're just a glimpse of what it's going to be like forever where every single one of us, we're not going to have like the religious professionals in heaven. All of us are going to steward the good earth that God created and the new heaven and the new earth that comes. And so we lean. In the meantime, our desire as the people of God is to lean towards that, to have a posture that prays this in. I love this from Jason Mandrick from Operation Mobilization. It's the opening pages. 
And this is what he says. Each and every prayer is a tiny piece of the great cosmic puzzle, which when fitted together will allow for the completion of the grand picture of the almighty Lord's plan for humanity and the universe. We do not merely pray about the many points featured herein. We pray towards something. And that something is magnificent, the fulfillment of the Father's purposes and his kingdom come. Every single one of us, as we pray prayers, revive us again, do it again, in our time, come Holy Spirit. We long for you. Each and every prayer is a tiny piece of a great cosmic puzzle over the whole earth where the people of God are calling in that moment when Jesus comes back and establishes his rule and reign on the earth and fully consummates the victory he won for us in Calvary. And it's important for us just to get this because there's a subtle danger that when we talk about revival that we're glorifying an event or a time in history more than the point. And the point is intimacy with God. The point is experiencing and living in the manifest presence of God himself, knowing him and making him known. Because the reality is sometimes we can become so obsessed with revival history or with a move in time that we, we kind of get obsessed to the point where we want our names to go down in history books. And what we do is we actually lose the point, which is to enjoy God. And so every intimate moment that we have with God should lead to encounter and breakthrough and awakening and revival, which should then lead back to intimacy. That's really, really important. Every moment that we have, every intimate encounter, we're sure births something through us. And there's an inbreaking of something and a revelation of something or an encounter of something should lead us back to even deeper intimacy. Because that's the end goal. To love God. To love God. And to know his love in our hearts and our souls. I felt the Lord slightly rebuke me this week for the fact that so many days in my life at the moment I pray, Lord, I need you which is a good prayer to pray. But I'm praying that one more than I'm praying, Lord, I want you. I want you. I desire you. I, I, I really need him. It's really busy at the moment. There's all sorts of great things. God's opening up all sorts of favor. And I find myself going from one meeting to another, Lord, I need you. And that's a good prayer to pray, but an even better prayer to pray is, Lord, I want you. I want you. That's what the revival it's about the revivalist prayers. Lord, I want you. I desire you. I long for you. And, uh, and so when, this, when we establish this important foundation, we can be inspired then by the moves of God in history, which I talked about last week, and I'm not going to take time to go through again, but please do listen because I'll just give a brief recap of revival history. But what I do want to do quickly before we move on is recap on the terms because it's really important that we know what we're talking about. We said when we talk about regeneration, we talk about people who have come to know Jesus, the process of being born again by the Spirit of God. Right? This is a big, long word, regenerated, but it means something new has happened in your life. When you get saved, something new has happened, an ongoing work of the Spirit transforming your life. That's what we call regeneration. When we talk about renewal, we're talking about when a significant number of people get regenerated or when people that have been Christians for years get a, a renewal of fresh energy of the Holy Spirit. They realign themselves with the presence of God and we witness fresh energy. And so when that starts to happen to lots of people in the church, we realize that some form of renewal is happening in the church. 
And throughout church history, there's been numerous renewals. And then when we talk about revival or awakening, we can use the terms interchangeably, I think. British people in history used to like, like the word revival. American people like the word awakening more. They're kind of both the same thing. You can get technical about it, but there's no point really. What we're talking about is revival is when renewal happens on a large scale. That something happens, an obvious sense of something supernatural is at work. And God's presence is pervading the earth in an almost unfiltered way, bringing kingdom advancement to a whole city, nation, or people group. Revival is renewal goes viral. And so in times of revival that we looked about last week, we don't just see the church being renewed. We see an advancement of kingdom priority right through the city. Hospitals get started. Schools get started. Mental health um, initiatives get launched. Slavery kind of uh, initiatives are, get, you know, for the flourishing of humanity, right? Whatever it's going to look like in heaven starts to look like that on earth, in the community, in the area in which we live. Revival, and in those times of revival, an acceleration happens in the things of the Spirit. What we might call the norming, normal working of the Spirit, things accelerate. Things that used to take 40 and 50 years happen in five minutes because God is at work. And so if you were to put these terms on a loose kind of a one, this is why this is really important, I feel, because part, I think, of the leader's job in the church is to try and help people discern the times, and this is what I'm trying to help you to do. And by this grace of God, hopefully I'm doing it on, on in step with him. So if we were to say regeneration is kind of like a personal thing, renewal is a corporate thing for the body of Christ, and revival and awakening spills out into culture. And if we were to say there's a kind of continuum moving towards those things, um, I want to propose to you as a church that we are about there and potentially being generous. But I don't think revivals are current reality. There's too much stuff that's broken around our streets. Far too much darkness around. Not enough kingdom advancement for us to believe that we're in those times. But I do think God is, is renewing us. I do think the wave has got generated. I do think the Lord is stirring his people. I do think God is calling us to realign our hearts for a passionate pursuit of his presence. And I feel like the wave is moving towards us. And so what I want to do tonight is propose that we try to discern what we do in these moments, right? And we don't just keep doing the same thing for the same thing's reasons because your systems will get you your own results, right? But sometimes when reality changes, it takes a little bit of time for our mindsets to, 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 to come up to speed with them. And I think our mindsets need to shift a little bit and our posture needs to shift as we lean towards what we feel God wants to do amongst us as a people. Is everyone all right with that? Yeah. And so what I want to do tonight, I want to look at some patterns of revival, some things that help us understand if this is the case, how do we lean further towards it? And as I talk tonight, if you feel as I talk, not because I'm talking, by the way, but hopefully but what the Spirit has inspired, if you feel like an, an, an ache in your spirit along just over the next half an hour. If you feel, oh, yes. If, if you get little points of resonance tonight where something in your spur kind of kicks or leaps or you, you, you feel even your body manifests a little bit, right? That, that is a sure sign, right? That God is, is stirring something, and I believe he is. 
And it's also a sure sign that we are caught up in something that God's doing all over the earth at the minute, by the way. I have lots of friends. I have lots of friends. I don't have lots of that. I have, uh, you know, bully for me. I have lots of friends around the world, okay, who, um, who in different places are experiencing the same thing. In, in droves, in great swathes of the church, despite the doom and gloom. Okay, so here, here's my five points. Holy discontent, the burden of God and contending prayer, the remnant, the centrality of the cross, and the exclusive pursuit of the presence of God. We're probably only going to get the first three done tonight. In fact, we've only got notes for the first three. I'm learning, folks. I'm learning. <laughs> the first thing that we notice when we enter into what I would describe as a revival dynamic, I have some, had some help here from some of Mark Sayers' writings. He just developed some of my own thinking around that, but he's a great voice at the moment if you want to read anything more on this, particularly for the current kind of stuff what God's doing in post-Christian culture in which we live which is where we live. Now, we do live in post-Christian culture. We're slightly different than Northern Ireland, but we, we live in, in post-Christian culture these days. And we need to discern how to be the people of God in those times. We, don't need, we, don't, we won't have all the same posture as we did 30, 40 years ago. Okay? And so we need, to, we need to be adaptable and flexible to what the Spirit's doing and discern that together. So the first thing is a holy discontent. Revival begins, the birthplace in some ways, is a holy discontent. It's a place of increasing dissatisfaction at the way the world is. In a time of growing disenchantment around us, your spirit starts to feel like a kind of grief. You start to watch things on the news or hear things about your streets, and you start to feel like an ache. And you start to feel like a grief. You start to feel, this isn't supposed to be like this. And you start to realize that the prevailing culture around us is is making your spirit feel a bit sick inside, maybe. But this is a holy discontent. So it's like the creaking and the groaning of creation has got in on your own soul. And you find yourself groaning. And you find yourself feeling things that you can't quite put words to because you're realizing that something's not right in the world. But instead of that sickness infecting your soul to the extent that it takes you out or takes you with it, this is a holy discontent. And holy discontent is a desperation for change that somehow maintains a hopeful posture for the kingdom of God to break in. It's a, it's a discontent that doesn't allow us to simply become, and this is what we need to be careful of, church. We become the cynical, pious observer, observers who look out at the culture and condemn. Look at the way the world is. Sure, the world's changed. And I'm not saying we can't like, observe that the world's changed, but we become pious and cynical, and we take a position of slightly taking the moral high ground, and we, make a, we, 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 we try to win arguments from that position. Or we talk from that place. But that's not holy discontent. Holy discontent takes that frustration, takes that grief, and it looks up to heaven and says, Lord, would you rend the heavens? Would you rip open heaven and would you come down? 
if you're wholly discontented, if you can be as blunt as this, you'll be at the prayer meeting. If you can be. Because, and you'll pray yourself. Because you'll be like, God, ran to heaven. The place that we need to direct all of this is, is towards your throne. We need help from heaven. I like how John Tyson develops this. He uses the phrase a lot. He develops this phrase, holy discontent. And he talks about the crystallization of discontent. I'm sorry, it sounds like a big word, but the crystallization of discontent is good because the discontent comes to a place where it doesn't become this vague, fudgy, nominal frustration, but it crystallizes to the point that's going to do something about it. It gets to the place where it realizes that they're discontent. You see, there's, there's a lot of discontent out there. There's a lot of discontent in the world at the minute. But most of it is full of, it's fear-based, it's reactionary, it's negative, and it expresses itself through the Facebook warriors. It, it, it's loud, it just adds to the noise. And it's a discontent, and I understand that there would be angst because our world is creaking at the moment, despite the myth of secularism that tells us the world is continuing to progress. Culture is exhausting itself at the minute. It's deconstructing itself to the point that it just can't go on anymore. And we find ourselves, as the people of God, with, in a sense, the same discontent, discontent that the world maybe feels, but ours is a holy thing that's been sanctified and redeemed by God that becomes prayerful and hopeful because of that. And the holy discontent of revivalists comes in the opposite spirit. Most of the moves of God throughout history had this preceding stage, a, a crystallization of discontent. There was a kind of holy rage about it. And when we look at the Bible, that's how it describes it as well. In the moves of God throughout Bible times, in the moves of God throughout the biblical story, times before God came and moved on Israel, we become aware of this discontent that was being expressed through the prophets. The prophets come into town and say, enough's enough. The immorality has reached a place where it cannot go on. You've disowned the poor. The rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. You're sacrificing your children. You're worshiping other gods. Enough is enough. It's like the prophets have crystallized the discontent in God's own heart. And they come, they're the bleeding heart of God, expressing the pain that God, as the father of his creation, is feeling about a humanity that has got so far away from what it was supposed to look like that he has to act. But God's like a parent, a loving a loving, a loving, loving, loving parent who wants his kids to grow up and wants them to be able to choose the things that he knows would be good for them and for him. He wants them to walk in his ways. And he doesn't necessarily always want to have to step in in the same way as when a child is maturing. A parent wants to lovingly watch it mature, but, but they get so far away from him. They move so far away from the compass that he had set for them. That he has to move and he has to act. And the prophets came in those moments saying, in your wrath, remember mercy, God. They came expressing this discontent, declaring that God was going to come and judge. And so you need to prepare your heart. Because if you prepare your heart right, the beauty of God is his mercy triumphs over judgment and you'll get his mercy. 
But if you don't, you will invite that judgment on your own life. That's what the prophets came declaring. It says in um, Isaiah chapter 30, the message version, the master said, this is an example of that, what I've just said, Isaiah the prophet. The master said, these people make a big show of saying the right thing, but their hearts aren't in it. Because they act like they're worshiping me, but don't mean it, I'm, I'm going to step in and shock them away. Astonish them. Stand them on their ears. The wise ones who had it all figured out will be exposed as fools. The smart people who thought they knew everything will turn out to know nothing. Sometimes, lots of times throughout history, throughout the Bible history, God has had to step in and expose the wisdom of man as folly. And we see the same in revival history throughout the last 2,000 years. And specifically, we see it in the Hebrides revival. 1949, there was a move of God not that long ago in the west coast of Scotland, just islands up on the northwest, uh, the island of Lewis initially, and some of the other islands as well. But here's where it happened. It happened because God moved, but it happened because there was a number of people that got really wholly discontent. In fact, it tells us that in October of 1949, the Free Church Presbytery of Lewis met in the town of Stornoway to consider, this is, they considered the terrible drift away from the church, especially by young people on the island and the dearth of conversions. Nobody was getting saved. Young people weren't coming to church. It seemed only a matter of time before churches were going to have to be closed. A resolution was passed. I like that. I like the fact that the church did something about it. I like the fact that they passed a resolution. And they sent a letter out. And they published something in the papers, I think it was. That's holy discontent crystallizing. That's not just talking about it. That's crystallizing their discontent at the point we're going to do something about it. And they called upon the faithful people to take these matters to heart. To view with deep concerns the inroads made by the prevailing spirit of the day. The age, the spirit of the age they realized was infecting the church. And something needed to be done. And so they repented. They were encouraged to repent and return again to the Lord, whom they had so grieved with their iniquity and waywardness. The declaration from the presbytery was read out in all the congregations and published in the local press. The discontent led them to do something. We'll find out just later what happened as a result of that. But what I just want to make mention of at this point is, before I move on to the second point, and this is really important, Discontent begins in a very personal place first. The revivalists ensure that discontent is a personal thing first with the state of their own heart. Any move of God begins with a bunch of people who experience the Spirit probing their own hearts first. They become aware of how deformed their own hearts are. They become aware of what's lacking in them. And even as I have preached this tonight and prepared for it, and even over the last week, as I've meditated on it, you know, I have this kind of, it's not a conflicting thing. It's all the same thing. But part of me has this longing, God, just help everybody to get this, what you want to do. And then this very personal Holy Spirit kind of whisper of, do you really want it? Do you, do you really, really want it? Do you really know what it's going to mean? Are you really prepared? 
prepared to allow me to do in your heart all that I need to do to see the inbreaking of my kingdom. Come. It's the age-old prayer of, Lord, start a revival. Lord, bring a revival. Start with me. I love this quote. Because the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And so we're living in dark days, folks. Right? We're living in tumultuous, serious times. Everything is being shaken. And God wants his, his discontent crystallize in our hearts I think he, he's, he, he is wanting us to know that this is our moment and we need to act and respond and yet we must be careful that we don't do this in a kind of judging street preacher kind of talking down kind of way but because if judgment's going to come it has to start at the house of the Lord it starts in our own hearts and this is where the revival people start because they ask the question if what was going on in my heart was multiplied through the city would that be a good thing if what was going on right in, in the deep recesses of my heart, if that was multiplied, if, they had, if the Spirit came and did that advancement thing that happens in revivals, if Jesus was in charge of my heart, they asked that question as much as they asked the question, what would it look like if Jesus is in charge of the city? What would, it's good to ask that question. It's good to have like a whiteboard session. I love whiteboard sessions. But a whiteboard session on what would it look like if Jesus was in charge of the city? That would be brilliant, wouldn't it? I can imagine the peace that would come from everyone that's tormented in their mind. Can you imagine the, what would happen homelessness? What would happen with adoption? Can you imagine the homes that we... Can you imagine how amazing that would be to do that? We should do that. We should do that more and more. But the people who long for revival are also prepared, maybe not to whiteboard it in front of church, but certainly to get two or three people around them who they love and trust and say, here's what's going on in my heart. And would you do a work in my heart? So what gets multiplied in there is a good thing. Remember, revival is renewal gone feral. So that stuff gets multiplied. In the place of holy discontent, our hearts are plowed up. It's like as we weep tears of repentance and as we weep tears of humility, it's like the tears that stream down our faces and say, God, we're sorry for our own sins and the sins of our nation at the moment. As we weep, it's like the tears that come down our cheeks. It's like they come on, almost like metaphorically, they come onto our hearts and they soften up. The crustedness and the hardness, our cynicism, our over-familiarity sometimes of what we think we know about God and how God's going to work. We have to lay all that stuff down. We have to lay down all the ways that God moved before and how we think he's going to do it this way and he should do it this way. And we become like these kind of slightly, we move into real, we move into pride really easily. And God wants us to lay those things down. Holy discontent is the birthplace of revival. There's Bill Johnson that says, humility, when he sees hunger and humility, he knows a breakthrough is in the air. And I am starting to feel this in my own heart, but I'm starting to feel this around this place. If I'm going to be honest, I think the Lord wants to do a bit more. I think he wants to stir some more holy discontent. I think that's what we need to move towards. God, break my heart for what breaks yours. Okay, second one, we're going well. The burden of God and contending prayer. Out of this place of holy discontent, as our hearts are softened to the Lord, and as this becomes the preparation for revival, something shifts and deepens in our own hearts. Something happens in our hearts where they become this kind of consecrated space, this kind of sanctuary 
for God's heart to beat through ours and for God's prayers to come through ours. And as we repent and turn from our ways, this is what I want you to, to, to I want to respond tonight. And, and some of you, God, the Holy Spirit, is challenging you to pray this prayer. Pray for the burden. Pray for the burden of God to be thrust upon your own soul. It's a big prayer. It's a big prayer, right? Pray for the burden of God to be thrust upon your own soul. That's what happens in times of awakening. We find ourselves grieving and praying and groaning. We find ourselves carrying a certain mood or a pain that we know is not ours. We find ourselves carrying an expectation for something that we can't quite explain. But it's the Spirit praying, witnessing, working in us and through us. And this leads into what we call contending prayer. This is not prayer for ourselves primarily, like just our own requests, as important as they are. It's not prayer just for the simple things of the day, as important as they are. We need to do that too. These are passionate, faithful prayers that are cutting through principalities and powers to pray in the kingdom of God. Situations and circumstances we find ourselves in. The Bible reminds us of this in different ways, but I'm just picking one in James, referring to Elijah, who I referenced earlier. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, just like we were. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three and a half years. And then he prayed, and the heavens give rain, and the earth produced its crops. Elijah teaches us, like others do in the Bible, what contending prayer really looks like. Powerful, effective prayer that prayers the burden in the being. Right? So God wants to thrust his burden for his, his broken humanity in our city and in our nation. He wants to thrust that upon his people, those who are wholly discontented, those who he knows he can trust and trust with that. And then he wants us to pray and to contend and to, to pray that into being. Our prayers that kind of have an incredible effect. And we don't always understand prayer, and we don't always see the answers that we want, but you can't read the Bible and simply say, lots of kind of contemplative prayer people, and I love all that stream, say prayer doesn't really change the world, it just changes us. Yes, I know. It does change us, but it changes the world. Prayer changes the world. It has to. Otherwise, it's like every, every time it says if in the, in, the, in the Bible, it's just like a metaphor. God actually means it, I think. Our prayers do change us. They change us first and foremost, but then through us, our prayers help change the world. When we contend, the very word contend, which is in the Bible a lot, means to, um, to stretch for or to fight for something. And these kind of prayer people that contend, they pray in the presence of God. They pray in the power of God. You get the impression that these people have become one with God's passion and desire. They're co-partnering with God at the deepest level to pray in God's heart. I love Martin Luther. He says that prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. The people that contend in prayer seize hold of the willingness of God. And they're like a dog with a bone with it. They will not let it go. Pray that in to being. It's like their horizon is what we talked about. Their horizon is not their own selfish ambition. Their horizon is not what they're going to do with their life. 
Their horizon has become the incoming of God's kingdom, God's future into the present. And they pray their way towards that. Walter Wink is brilliant in this as well. History belongs to the intercessors, those who believe and pray the future into being. We have to lift our eyes, lift our sights, get a proper understanding of what the kingdom looks like, and then pray it in, believe it in on faith. And then he goes on to say this, intercessory prayer is a spiritual defiance of what is in the way of what God has promised, right? And so the, the revivalists of the past get a promise from God, get a burden from God, and then they just pray it in. And they believe that everything that's getting in the way of that can be prayed out of the way in order for that promise to be fulfilled. That's how God broke in in history. And when holy discontent starts, then what we start to find is the burden of God comes upon our souls. He gives us a promise for what can be, and we just pray, and we pray, and we fast, and we seek the Lord in order to see that come into play. God wants us to join him in seeing that come. In the Bible, in Isaiah chapter 49, God says, I will contend with those who contend against you. God wants us to join him in the contention against the forces of darkness, right? Contending prayer is willing, not in its own strength, but it's willing to confront the darkness that is preventing the inbreaking of the kingdom. And it will cut through that stuff with the power of prayer. Rather than teaching it anymore, let me give you a couple of examples before we do the third point. Charles Finney. Susie likes Charles Finney. Who's it? My man's sister. Charlesy Finney. Charlesy? Charles, Charles Finney was a great evangelist, right? He saw hundreds of thousands of people come to know the Lord. He preached and hundreds of thousands of people. But he had a prayer intercessor, and he was called Daniel Nash. That's him. Now, you might not, you know, for those of us who feel like we're young and hipster, you might think this guy doesn't look like much. But let me tell you, see when we get to heaven. See when we get to heaven. See, see people like this. They're going to be able to tell you some stories. Because before Charles Finney preached in any of the cities he went into, he allowed and asked Daniel Nash to go into the city beforehand. And Daniel Nash literally prayed down heaven. He would get a list of the worst sinners in the town and he'd just go after them. Lord, save them. Lord, wake them in the light. Lord, let your conviction come upon them. Lord, do whatever you need to do to get their attention. And people would come to know the Lord. They would find him in the woods. And when they, when, they, when they found him in the woods, they would hear a man groaning and crying out to God as he contended. One account says this. Listen to this. On one occasion when I got to town to start a revival, this is Charles Finney, a lady contacted me who ran a boarding house. She said, Brother Finney, do you know a father, Nash, Daniel Nash? He and two other men have been at my boarding house for the last three days, but they haven't eaten a bite of food. I opened the door and I peeped in at them because I could hear them groaning and I saw them down on their faces. They've been this way for three days, lying prostrate on the floor and groaning. I thought something awful must have happened to them. I was afraid to go in. I didn't know what to do. Would you please come and see about them? No, it isn't necessary, Finney replied. They just have a spurt of travail in prayer. When Daniel Ash died, they said Charles Finney's ministry was never the same again. 
because here's a man, you've probably never heard of him before, but I tell you what, in the annals of heaven, he's right up there. I'll give you another example. Some of you will know the story of the Hebrides revival, which I mentioned. And the people started to get discontent. Nobody at church. Two old ladies, 84 and 82. There they are. Now, with the greatest respect to them, right? Physically, they don't look that vigorous, okay? Right? One of them was actually stone blind. Miss Duncan Campbell in the middle of them. And they were burdened because of the state of the church. They were burdened because there were no young people coming to church. They were burdened. And they started to pray. And <clears throat> a verse gripped them. This was the promise they got. And the promise was, I will pour out water on him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. And they just went after it. They were burdened. So they spent prayer, time in prayer twice a week. <clears throat> One Tuesday, they got on their knees at 10 o'clock in the evening and remained on their knees until 3 in the morning. And, um, and just in a little cottage. And one of the sisters had a vision. The vision was that they saw a church crowded with young people packed to the door. She was so impressed by the vision that she sent for the minister. The minister knew that there were godly women, so he thought, I better go to this cottage and hear what these two wee godly women have to say. And that morning, one of the, women, one of the sisters said to the, said, said to the minister, you must do something about it. I would suggest that you go to your office, spurs, elders, call them together, and let them get two nights of prayer a week going. And if you pray in that barn, we'll pray in this cottage. And so they started praying in the barn and praying in the cottage. And after, they reckon, a month and a half of prayer, one night where they were kneeling in the barn with the promise that they were pleading to God, I will pour out water in him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. One young man got up and he said, he read Psalm 24, Who shall ascend the hell of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He has clean hands and a pure heart. He has not lifted up his soul unto vanity or sworn deceitfully. And then he closed his Bible and he lifted his two hands and he prayed, God, are my hands clean? God, is my heart pure? And then he fell to the ground in what they can only describe as a trance. And the power of God filled the barn. And a few days later, Duncan Campbell arrived on the island. He was going to be the preacher. And this is what he said, what happened when he got there. I shall never forget the night I arrived. We got to church about a quarter to nine. There's about 300 people there. I would say, I'd say about 300 people. I give an address. Nothing really happened during the service. It was a good meeting. A sense of God, a consciousness of the spirit moving, but nothing beyond that. So I pronounced the benediction. And we, as we were leaving the church, it was about a quarter to 11. See, you aren't getting off bad, right? According to 11. <laughs> Just as I was walking down the aisle, the same young deacon who read the psalm in the barn a few nights before, he stood in the aisle and he looked up to heavens and he said, God, you can't fail us. God, you can't fail us. You promised that you would pour out water on the thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. God, you can't fail us. And he fell on his knees and he fell into another trance. And just then the door opened, it was 11 o'clock. And when they opened the door, the local blacksmith ran up to the doors and he said, Mr. Campbell, something wonderful has happened. We were praying that God would pour water on the thirsty and floods in the dry ground. And listen, he's done it. He's done it. And I went to the door and I saw approximately 600 people standing outside the door. What had happened? I believe that very night, he says, God swept in in Pentecostal power. At the same time as they were praying, 100 young people were in a disco somewhere. 
During their dance, God suddenly fell on them. The music at the dance hall stopped. The young people were overcome with conviction, fled the hall, and made their way to the church. There were hundreds who made their way to the church. They'd been in bed, and without any explanation, naturally got out of their bed, dressed themselves, and ran to the church. A hunger and a thirst for God overwhelmed the people in the area. In the church, the gathered crowd began singing psalms. People in the aisles and the pews were on their knees, crying out to God to have mercy. The meeting continued to 4 a.m. in the morning. All because people contended in prayer. Two, an 84-year-old and an 82-year-old sister. These people knew how to release the Holy Spirit. I mean, when they get up to do the announcements, probably people would have got saved. Because they were carrying the power of God. One of them was, one of them was Donald McPhail. Some of you have heard him. The praying, Donald, the praying teenager. He got saved in the revival in the Hebrides. Here's the truth. I can't even find a picture of him on Google. These are not Hollywood stars. These are the saints that sit around the throne of God. And Donald McPhail used to sit in the services after he got saved. And that Duncan Campbell used to preach his messages. And on one or two occasions, he couldn't get breakthrough. And he prayed, Donald, 16-year-old boy, would you pray? Donald got up and said, Father. And he never got any further. And the presence of God released in the room in such a way that people hit the deck under the conviction of sin, giving their lives to Jesus. In 1859, in Kells, in in the back end of nowhere, in this little church house, four young men, four young men decided to pray every week. They were challenged by the minister. This was a simple message, do something great for God. And so they started to pray. Three months, nothing happened. Two more men had joined the prayer meeting, but after three months, one person was converted. And then after a few more weeks, another one. And before they knew it, every night, somebody was getting converted. And in a year, 50 young men were meeting to pray every week. And God was at work. Evan Roberts, the Welsh Revival, not going to talk about it, but suffice to say that he said, young man in his 20s again, for 20 or 11 years, I prayed for revival contending prayer, the burden of God thrust upon the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. And finally, for tonight, the remnant. As the burden of God is thrust upon the hearts and souls of men, what starts to happen is they start to find each other. (laughs) They start to like, you want this too, it's almost like. And then they start to find each other. And then what those people do is they'll find a way to get in a room and pray. And it might even be the back of it might even be their car. It might be it might be uh, it might be a little random storeroom in your school. They'll find one another and they'll pray. And <clears throat> throughout the Bible, um, we we see this. This is what we call a remnant, a group of faithful people who have chosen not to waver and have chosen rather to allow holy discontent to rise within them. And we see throughout scriptures when God is refining in the midst of moral and church and decline in the midst of idolatry, a remnant of faithful people start to gather. The nominal start to get separated from the passionate. 
these are times and that's probably going to happen. That's going to be really tough, especially maybe if you're a younger person because all your friends aren't going to go with you. In times of revival, the nominal gets slightly separated from the passion. But a remnant is left like the stump of a tree that God wants to reestablish something new on. He's had to cut it right back, but there's, a, there's still a remnant. The Bible talks about this loads throughout the Old Testament. And the remnants are the foundations of a move of God. We were in Edinburgh there just for 24 hours on Friday and Saturday, and when we were coming into Edinburgh, I was looking out the window, and there was like just a bunch of windmills all kind of together on the hills of Scotland. And it was like they were all concentrated together. And that's kind of what happens. In order to generate momentum, a remnant of people with a hunger and a desire to pray the burdens of, burdens of God, they find one another and they start to pray. And I believe that's what's happening right now, particularly for Ireland. God has his eye on this nation. God is calling the diaspora, some of them home. God is calling people that don't even live in Ireland to pray for Ireland. God's eye is on this nation, I really believe it. People are finding one another. Uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, as much as there's lots of damages to the internet and all of that, there's lots of, there's lots of potential opportunities as well. The Holy Spirit is connecting people, connecting people all over the world, praying for this nation, praying for a move of God's Spirit. A remnant are being gathered, and the Spirit is orchestrating this. And if you want to be caught up in it, you just have to lift up your seals. And God, we see when you sell out to God, God will encourage you and remind you that there is a remnant. He did it with Elijah when Elijah thought he was the only one. There's 7,000 others. There's a remnant in this country is what he was saying. And he's saying that to us. And I want to encourage some of you young people who are going to university, seek out that one or two. Seek them out. Pray them in. Ask God. They're there. They're there. They might be the, as we talk in 24-7, they might be the frightened and forgotten in culture, but they're there. And they've got a sort of flicker in their eye. They've got a, a kind of beautiful intensity about them because they're longing and they're living for something more. When I sold out for God, right, when I was 17, I hope Rick won't mind me saying this, but we, I was in the same class as Rick for most of it. He, he was a bit smarter than me. He was the top end of the class, right? But... Um, we knew each other. We knew each other pretty well. But when God did something in my heart around 17, up until that point, we knew each other, but we didn't have loads in common. I really loved football. Rick didn't really, right? <laughs> Rick, Rick was like good at like sciences, and I wasn't. Um, I wasn't. I wasn't wild, but I suppose it's like I'd like to think of myself because I played football. Sort of one of the lads, and Rick was sheltered and good and solid, <laughs> right? So we didn't have moves in common. But what I was thinking about this as I was preparing, when something happened in my heart, I knew there was something in heaven. And I said, I need to talk to him. Because what's going on in me, I think it's going on in him. And so I'm going I'm to have a conversation with him. And I'm going to become his new best friend. And he didn't know... What, what I was doing, what, why I would do, but I, I just wanted to be where somebody else was who had the same thing. And we've been praying together ever since. And we've been praying for revival ever since. And we've been praying for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God ever since. And we've been praying for the Holy Spirit to come because God wants to connect your heart with other people who will pray at this end. And so I want to prophesy tonight, right, that the prayer room is going to become a place not just of individuals going in, I want to prophesy tonight that we're going to 
go in twos and threes. And we're going to even do it when it's uncomfortable. And we're going to start going back into the middle of the night. And we're going to hold one another to account. And we're going to say, we're going to go into the prayer room together. And we're going to pray for an inbreaking of the kingdom of God. The remnant of God are hungry for a move of God in their generation. They pray the Habakkuk prayer. They get together in twos and threes and fours and fives and say, God, we've heard of this before. We've heard of this before. We've got these kind of faint glimmers of things that you've done before, but God, in our time, do it again. Right? And they just never get tired of praying that. They just, they just keep on contending for that. Last couple of quotes, and then maybe Dixie would come. Because of what like us just to sing as we respond. The remnant, the remnant know this is their moment. And more than knowing this is their moment, it's like that holy discontent. They own the moment. They own it. They say that sort of thing, not on my watch. Just listen to this quote, if you would. So at Kells, at the revival in Kells, which I spoke about a few a few weeks ago, or a few moments ago, um, which was up in Balamina, where, just outside Balamina, where four young men kind of prayed in a move of God's spirit. One of those young men was Jeremiah Manili. And this is, this is what he said. This is what he said. This was the one great object and burden of our prayers. Right? The one great object. We held right to the one thing and we did not run off to anything else. I love that. With all due respect, do you ever go to a prayer meeting and it kind of gets a wee bit off course? We held right to one thing and we did not run off to anything else. The minister was favorable towards us all the time. But many of the people ridiculed our praying for an outpouring of the Spirit, saying that it had already been poured out on the day of Pentecost. You're going to get that, by the way. People are going to ask you, what are you praying? What are you praying for revival for? Sure, you don't just get on, preach the gospel, love the poor. Pentecost happened 2,000 years ago. Why do you need it again? You're going to get that. And sometimes you're not going to be able to explain it, and you're probably better not getting into an argument. You just say, God, God's told me to do this. Because put a desire in my heart to pray and I'm going to do it. We replied that the Lord knew what we wanted and we kept right on praying until the power came. <laughs> and that's what the remnant does. They keep on praying. They take the flack. They take it on the chin. They take the ridicule because they're living for something happened. The Bible shows us in the book of Acts that while Pentecost in Acts 2 was a wonderful, wonderful time, and in some ways monumental for the church and significant as a once-off in a sense, it wasn't really. There was subsequent outpourings of the Spirit right through the book of Acts. And for every generation whose responsibility it is to hurl the good news of the gospel, there is a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that that's where God is leading us to today. Next week, we're going to look at two other strong, strong patterns. We're going to leave more time for encounter and for response next week. But I just really feel tonight that um, there's some people here that we respond and God is just calling you to ask him <laughs> to allow him to stir up holy discontent, to invite the burden of God 
onto your own heart. And I feel like there's some of you that you actually just need to go and come with the person or the people that you think God's calling you to pray with. Come together. Come and stand together as we respond tonight. I'm not going to, I'm going to pray over you in a moment. Um, but I, I'd just love us to respond. Dixie's going to sing a song. It's a new song. It's a, been listening to it all summer. It's been like a theme tune this year. It's a song called God of Our Mothers and Fathers. Come again. Like you've moved before, come and move again. That's what we're living for and that's what we're longing for. And so as Dixie sings, that's why we stand to our feet just now. As Dixie sings this. as I pray, I just want to encourage you throughout this song, I just want you to come forward and I'm going to just pray over everyone, okay, that responds, okay, just God, to stir up holy discontent almost this prayer is your prayer and if you want to come with the people that you feel God has called you to pray with come and let the Holy Spirit knit something even deeper than ever before in your hearts together, so Holy Spirit thank you for what you're doing here, we just welcome you to continue God, we we don't want to just miss a moment, I know we're just on the edge of time, but God, when you move, time doesn't really matter. And so God, we just want to enter into that space, oh God, where the things around us just don't matter as much in these moments because you're at work, God, in sovereign move of your grace, oh God. So we just welcome, God, you're stirring in our hearts, stir up our hearts to respond to what you're doing for your glory in Jesus' name. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. For more information about our church and all that we do, please visit our website at emmanuel-church.co.uk.